hear me now? All right. He had said that while he was a mentor, mentor ministry student in Scotland, in Europe, and was at that church back in 1992, he said that he would also often run into people who were praying. And when they would pray, he said that they would often thank God for the way that God had brought down the Iron Curtain of Communism in Eastern Europe. He said when he would listen to them pray, it was clear that they believed that that happened in part because of their prayers, that their prayers had something to do with the coming down of the Soviet Empire. He says that he was often tempted to pull one of these old ladies or old men off to the side and say, you do know it was a little bit more complicated than that, right? That the global economy had something to do with it, not to mention the arms race, the spiritual bankruptcy of communism. He, he often wanted to pull one of them aside and say, you do know it took a little bit more than your prayers for the Soviet empire to come crashing down. He said he was often tempted to say that, but he never did because he knew better. And this is what he says, quote, Who is to say what part a praying church actually plays in world affairs? The prayers of God's people really are at the heart of what God is doing. When the true history of the world is finally written, we will discover that Christians like the ones in the church in Europe had a profound influence on world events. That's a good quote. Let me give you another example, much closer to home. You know New York City. You know Manhattan. You know Times Square. In Times Square is 42nd Street, a place that you may have visited now with no problems. It was not so just a few decades ago. And I'm not talking generations past, centuries past. I'm saying within our lifetime, 42nd Street was this dangerous, disgusting, seedy place. 42nd Street was literally the red light district of New York. Every filthy thing you could conceive of, think of, or imagine was on 42nd Street. It was filled with pimps and prostitutes and drug dealers, X-rated movie theaters, live peep shows, drug addicts, crime, poverty, corruption, all the rest. One comedian once said that they called it 42nd Street because if you spent more than 40 seconds on it, you were not safe, right? That's how bad this place was. And again, this is not some era gone by. This is in our generation. And yet, if you go there today... It is completely different. In fact, you might take your children on a stroll through 42nd Street. As you're visiting New York and Manhattan and Times Square, you would have no problem bringing your children through that place. There's theaters and there's restaurants. It's a fine place for you to attend. Now, here's the question. How did that happen? How did such a radical transformation of that place and of that city take place? If you consult the historians, they'll tell you that in the 90s, there was a major citywide and government-sponsored effort. City officials and government officials got involved to try and clean up 42nd Street. And so there was all kinds of effort put into evicting the X-rated theaters and, and driving out the pimps and the prostitutes and cleaning up the whole place so that now, within our lifetime, it's different. But here's what the history books won't tell you. That just a few years before that, in the late 80s, in 1987 in fact, that a pastor and a group of people were walking the streets on 42nd Street begging God to do something about what they were seeing. 
begging God weekly that God would somehow redeem the broken spiritual and physical lives of the people on that street. And that pastor's name was a man named David Wilkerson, and the church that he planted was called Times Square Church, right in the heart of the city. And that church has grown to thousands, and and it's created this organization called Teen Challenge, which we at Seven Mile Road even know well. Or at that same time, just a few miles away in Manhattan, were another group of Christians weekly gathering to pray, 15 of them, every week committed to praying that perhaps God wanted to plant a city, right, a church right in the heart of the city for New Yorkers. That weekly prayer meeting was led by a man named Tim Keller. And the church planted out of that was Redeemer Presbyterian Church, a church that since has literally planted hundreds of other churches in the city, in the country, and in the world. I think Phil Riken is right to say that perhaps only in eternity will we actually know of the history-shaping, world-changing, life-transforming impact that was born out of and resulted from a local church that gathered to pray. I think only when history is told in eternity will we know of the full impact upon world events, upon history, upon cities and countries and lives that were born out of and birthed out of people that gathered to pray. God does amazing things when his people pray together. God does amazing things when his people pray together. All right, so let me tell you what my hope for this morning is. I'll tell you what I've been praying, what I've been dreaming, what I've been hoping, what I've asked God for from our time this morning. My hope is that on account of you sitting here this morning, as I proclaim to you God's word for what it is, not the opinion of man, but God's truth that you ought to listen to, And as you sit there humbly, not arrogantly thinking you know best, but humbly under the weight of God's word, that God would instill in you a passion for him and a deep passion for corporate prayer. My hope is that this sermon for you would be this morning life-changing. All right, that's, that's pretty pompous for a pastor to say. And I'm, I want to say it carefully. I'm asking God that this would be life-changing for you, not that this would be a blockbuster time and entertaining for you. I don't think it will be. But I do pray that God would lodge some truth into your heart this morning that would stick with you and somehow begin to grow and germinate into this passion for praying with God's people that your appetite would begin to get wet for what God could do if a group of believers would actually gather and pray. God does amazing things when his people pray together. All right, so let me pray out loud that God would do that, and then we'll press into the word together. Let's pray. Our Lord, we ask that you would be with us now and show us your Son, Jesus Christ. Let none leave here thinking that they do not need him. But let everyone leave here convinced that they need him and find him. We pray that the Holy Spirit would be here now and fill me so that what I say would not be the thoughts of of a mere man, but would be the truth of God. Constrain my lips to say no more and free my lips to say all. 
that you would have me say. And be with your people, that as these words fly out from my mouth, they would be attached with power by the Holy Spirit, who himself would cause them to penetrate our blind eyes, deaf ears, hard hearts, dull minds, and that they would not be snatched up by our enemy that wants to distract us, not be choked out by the many cares and concerns of this world, not spring up only to be burned up by adversity and hardship, but that they would actually be planted deep in our heart and germinate and grow till it changes our lives, produces fruit. And this morning I ask that you would give to Seven Mile Road a passion to pray together that we might see God do amazing things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you were here last week, you know that we preached through Matthew 6. We can start there. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 6. A few books before the book of Acts that you're going to have a finger in as well that Nate read for us. Matthew 6, and when we were there, we heard Jesus teach his disciples about prayer. He said to them, when you pray, make sure that you don't go stand in the synagogue, that's the place of worship, loud enough for everyone to see you and think about how great you are. Don't go to the street corner so that you make a big show. In fact, when you pray, Jesus said, go to your room, shut the door, and in secret, pray to your Father who is in secret, and you will be rewarded. Now we heard Jesus teach that when we pray, we ought to do it in our rooms, with the door shut. And we asked last week, wait, does that mean that God is sort of against us praying together? And we said, no, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying it's wrong to be seen praying. Jesus is saying it's wrong to be praying in order to be seen. There's a difference. It's not wrong to be seen praying. It's wrong to be praying in order to be seen. That if you're motivation is to somehow make yourself look spiritual and good to a bunch of people. That's not how prayer works. And so Jesus is not critiquing the situation or setting, but the motivation. What drives you to pray? And in fact, in order that we might not go too far in thinking that prayer is just this private, individualized, me and God shut everyone else out experience, the very prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray in Matthew 6 clues us into the reality that prayer is not just me and God, but us and God. Let me say that again. The very prayer that Jesus models for his disciples to pray reminds us and clues us that prayer is not just this private thing between me and God, but has a corporate nature to it, has a us-together nature to it. In fact, the very first word of the prayer Jesus teaches us reminds us that prayer is not just about me and God. What's the first word? Our, our Father who is in heaven. So from the very first word, the first step into prayer reminds us this is not just me and God. He is our Father. And how does the prayer continue? It doesn't say, give me this day my daily bread and forgive me my debts as I forgive my debtors and lead me not into trans temptation, but deliver me from... E That's not the prayer. The prayer is, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then when the petitions start, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. From the first moment that Jesus models prayer for his disciples, we're immediately reminded that there's this 
corporate, body, family language and nature to prayer. It's not just me and God. It's us and God. Right? Our Father. And, and the beauty is, in just those two words, and this is why Jesus and His Scriptures is so wonderful, in just two words, Jesus captures the truth of the gospel, the truth about his body, the church, all of it in two words. When he says, our Father, we're immediately reminded of gospel. Gospel, the good news. Let me remind you what we cling to every week. The good news is we were in our sin, away from God, enemies of God, dead in our trespasses and sins. We had no thought for God, no desire for God, and no way to get to God on our own. And yet He, because He is a good Father, sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die for our sins and called us who were dead into life and made us who were blind see and caused us who were deaf to hear. We didn't do any of that. He brought us in and He adopted us into His family. Like a child in an orphanage does not pick his parents, so God brought us to Himself, adopted us into His family. And now when we say our Father... We are reminded that in the heavens we do not have a God who is angry at us, but a Father. And if He's my Father and your Father, He's our Father, that means that you are now my brother. I am now your brother. We are brothers and sisters together. Just two words. And we cannot get into the Lord's Prayer without remembering the Gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, Our Father, and then He says, Give us this day our daily bread. So that means when we pray, there's this corporate nature to prayer. You're not just praying about me and my needs. You're praying about our daily provision. That's why it's right for us to gather in, in smaller communities like Soul Care and pray for one another. That's why it's right for us to pray for one another's needs when we're in trouble, when we're rejoicing, when we're sick, and so on. It's like a child that goes to dad and says, Dad and Mom, would you help me? Would you feed me? Would you clothe me? Would you get me to school? Would you put me to bed? Would you help me? That's one thing. And Dad will put up with it. But how much it will warm Dad's heart if that brother comes and says, Dad, could you help my brother? Could you help my sister? I mean, that takes maturity. That takes a step of maturity to know that Dad, pleading for Dad to help your brother... And Jesus is pushing us to that kind of maturity in prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Is it wrong for you to pray about just your sins? No. Pray for them. Confess them to God. God, this is what I did on Tuesday. This is what I thought on Wednesday. This is what I said on Friday. But there's a corporate nature to our confession as well. So when Sibby is up here strumming the guitar, inviting us to confess, ought you to confess your sins? Yes. But Jesus is saying, you ought to pray, forgive us our debts. That you're looking to the left and right and seeing you're surrounded by sinners who need God's forgiveness as much as you do. And you're taking the example of some of the heroes of the Bible, like Isaiah, who saw God and said, God, I am a man of unclean lips. Was that the end? And I live among a people of unclean lips. I'm a sinner, and everyone around me is messed up as well. Or Nehemiah, who when he prays, says, God, forgive me for our sins and the sins of my father and the sins of my people. Think of that. Nehemiah doesn't stand at a distance and go, those people are bad. I'm not one of them. 
No, he identifies their sin is my sin, my sin is their sin. We are all broken together. And he pleads for his people. Or the man Job in the Old Testament, who it says used to offer sacrifices for his children in case they made sins that they did not ask forgiveness for. That, that his job as a dad was to remember, maybe my son or daughter messed up. God, please, please be merciful to him. Please be gracious to them. Forgive us our debts. So part of what we're doing when we confess is not just, God, I'm broken, but we're broken. And, and we're looking and saying, what is our brokenness at Seven Mile Road? What sins dominate us as a people? Are we a greedy people who love money more than we love God? Are we a lustful people that the character of our body is that we give ourselves over to our passions and we have little self-control? Are we a selfish people that want lots of God and His blessings for ourselves but have no thought for anyone else? And so we as a body are confessing our sins, forgive us our debts, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So you're, you're praying, not just God keep me far away from sin, but in this body, somebody is going to be tempted to sin today. Would you keep them far away from sin? Would you help so-and-so keep straight today? Would you make sure that all of us are spiritually protected? Listen, there's more that we could say. I'm sort of just giving you an appetizer to say, Jesus' first and model prayer teaches his disciples from the very first step that prayer is not just me and God but it has a corporate nature to it. It's us and God. And here's what I want you to hear. Here's what that introduction is supposed to remind you. That Jesus' teaching has such a deep and profound impact on his disciples that they never from then onwards forget or neglect the importance of corporate prayer. What Jesus taught them so stayed with them, so lodged in their hearts, so reminded them that the very first prayer that he taught them to pray reminded them to pray not just for one another, but with one another. This was a prayer that could be prayed by 10 people and 20 people and 1,000 people. And that lesson that Jesus taught them stayed with them so that from then on, as you see them, even after Jesus died, rose again, went back to heaven and promised that he would come again, when these disciples are living on the earth, they do not forget nor neglect the importance of corporate prayer. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to walk you quickly through the book of Acts and show you the settings in which these people prayed and show you the amazing things that God did when they prayed together. I want to walk you quickly through this book. We'll walk through it very fast and show you some of the amazing things that God did in response to the people praying together. If you've got the Bible, turn to Acts 1. I think it's page 590, the, the page before the one that Nate had read for us. Acts 1. Let me just set the scene. We're going to look at verse 14. When you get to Acts 1, here's what happens. Jesus taught them to pray. Jesus went to Jerusalem. Jesus dies on the cross. Jesus rises again. Jesus lives with his disciples for 40 days on the earth, teaching them more and more. He goes into heaven, Acts 1. He ascends into heaven. He tells them, I'm going to come back just like I left. And he tells them, you will be, in verse 8, my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He's telling them, 
You are going to tell people what you saw me do and about me, and you're going to do it in these ever-increasing concentric circles. In Jerusalem, the city you're in now, Judea a bit further, Samaria cross-culturally to the ends of the earth. That's how you're going to be my disciples. To do that, you're going to need power. And he says, wait in Jerusalem so that power would be given to you so that you can be my disciples to the ends of the earth. And so here's what the disciples do. They obey Jesus, and they wait for power, and they pray. Look at verse 14, Acts 1. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Hear that again. They were, with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer. So here they are. Jesus told them to wait, and in the Bible, waiting on God is so closely associated with praying to God that you can't separate the two. It's like trying to take sugar out of tea. You can't parse the two. They're so blended together. When they heard Jesus say, wait on God, that meant for them, pray to God. And so here they are. They're in one accord. Many different hearts, many different faces. But when they're praying, they're one. And in one accord, they're devoted to praying. It's a great word, devoted. You think about what are the things you're devoted to. If you're devoted to losing weight, you'll exercise. If you're devoted to getting a, a promotion, you'll be devoted to your work. If you're devoted to getting that degree, you'll be devoted to studying. These people, the church, was devoted to praying together. And so here they are, just like Jesus told them, meeting together, gathering together, praying together, devoted in one accord, waiting for the promised power. And I want you to know when you flip the page to Acts 2, verse 1 tells us that as they were in that posture of gathered praying together, out of this prayer meeting, the Holy Spirit that God had promised from the beginning drops and falls and fills on them. And it's this scene called Pentecost. There was this celebration that they had all gathered for. And the Holy Spirit fills all of these believers. And on that day, the church of Jesus Christ is born. So I guess I'd have you consider that they were praying together and it resulted in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church. They were praying together and it resulted in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church. All right, let's keep going. I want to show you more. In 1 verse 24... Now Peter has got up from this prayer meeting and he is sensed by the Holy Spirit that Judas, the traitor, betrayed Jesus. He's committed suicide. Someone needs to step in and take his place. But who? They're not sure who. Jesus is the one who had handpicked all the apostles. Now how are they going to choose who it should be? Verse 24. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So here they are. They need to make a decision about who to call into apostleship. Judas has committed suicide. Someone's got to step in. They come up with two names. They have no idea how to, to move forward. They're essentially at a crossroads. They've got a giant question mark. They don't know which way to go. What do they do? Friends, when we do not know what we ought to do, the Bible tells us what to do when we don't know what to do, which is to pray. 
I'll say that again. When we do not know what to do, the Bible tells us what to do when we don't know what to do, which is to pray. And God moves these people to pray and leads them to his choice. And so I guess I'd have you consider that they prayed together and it resulted in God showing them what they ought to do. All right, flip, keep going. 2 verse 1 was Pentecost and the Holy Spirit falls. The church is born. Peter gets up in chapter 2, preaches this incredible sermon. 3,000 people are cut to the heart, convicted about their sins, believe in Jesus, get baptized that day, and become a part of the local church. And now in chapter 2, you have the first description in human history of what the first church looked like. What did the very first church ever planted look like? What did that body of believers look like? Verse 42. Here again the words Nate read, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. If you love Jesus' church, you love this passage because you get this beautiful, inspiring, awe-striking description of what the first church looked like. And here's what happened. They lived in community. You see that. They shared their possessions together. They distributed what they had to one another. They would sell their stuff to make sure no one in their community had need. They worshipped together. They went to the temple together. They broke bread in their homes together. They ate together. They laughed together. They were glad together. They saw people getting saved together. And the passage tells us that part of what life in that community looked like is here it again. They devoted themselves. There's that word devoted again. They devoted themselves to prayer, to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. It says here that they went to the temple together, so that means sort of like what we're doing on the Lord's Day, gathering big. But then they would also break out into homes. 3,000 people were not going to fit in one small Jewish home. So what they did was they had smaller communities, like our soul care communities. And when they were in the temple together, they would pray. And then when they were in these homes together, they would pray. In every setting where they were together, they were praying together. So I guess I'd have you consider that part of what it meant to belong to Jesus' church was corporate prayer. Part of what it meant to belong to Jesus and his church was praying together. All right, let's keep going. This loving, sharing, believing, gospel-proclaiming, praying community of believers, the church, becomes so attractive that people are getting saved all over the place. Do you hear the end of verse 47? It said, And the Lord added daily to their number those who were getting saved. And God is doing great and incredible things in these disciples and through these disciples. And in chapter 3, we won't read through it now, Peter and John are walking to the temple to go and pray. They come across a cripple. And they saw Jesus 
make the cripple walk, and so they figured they could do the same thing. They didn't know any better. They said, in the name of Jesus, walk, and this man gets up. And you can imagine the commotion that that causes, and the name of Jesus is now spreading even more. And remember, it's only been about a month or two since Jesus has died, and his enemies are still in power. The religious leaders hear that Jesus' name is making more waves than even when he was alive, and so they get angry. And so they grab Peter and John, they arrest him, they put him in prison, and then they threaten him. And they say, you are to go from here, but do not speak any more about this name. You say the name Jesus again, and you'll find out what happens. And nobody wanted to find out what happens. And yet, listen to how they respond. Look at 4 verse 23. Look at at what their immediate response is. They've been imprisoned, they've been persecuted, they've been threatened and warned. It says in 23, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, verse 29, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and do signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Here these two men are. They're arrested, they're warned, and they're threatened never to speak of Jesus again. Their immediate first response is to go grab their friends and their fellow believers and gather together to pray. And that's what they do. They pray, and this this group, this prayer meeting, this gathered church, they begin to pray, and and if you look, they pray the scripture like we preached about. They, They quote David from Psalm 2, and they pray the scripture back to God. They let God's word shape their words to God. And then they pray this bold prayer. Look again at verse 29. Lord, look upon the threats and grant us more boldness. And do more signs and more wonders in the name of your servant, Jesus. You think of that. Maybe if Peter went off to pray by himself, or John went off to his own prayer room, maybe the best they would have thought to pray was, God, keep us safe. God, change the circumstance. God, put new rulers in place. There's no prayer for safety, no change in their circumstance. Their prayer is, Together, emboldened, encouraged by one another, their prayer is God make us more bold to talk more about Jesus so you could do more signs and more wonders and more disciples and more conversions so the church would grow more. They pray together. And look at what happens again when they pray together. Verse 31. When they had prayed, the place in where they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continue to speak the word of God with boldness. The very room they're sitting in begins to rock. 
And they are filled, it says, with the Holy Spirit. Now, I won't go into this much, but remember that in Acts 2, they were already given the Holy Spirit. And yet, as you read Acts, it seems that believers can be filled with the Holy Spirit over and over again and need the filling of the Holy Spirit for continued work and effective ministry. I'm not talking about a second baptism or those kinds of things. I'm saying these men who were filled with the Holy Spirit because of their time together in corporate prayer were filled again with the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 4, verse 8, he's filled with the Spirit and preaches boldly. And now in response to corporate prayer, the Holy Spirit fills them again and the response, the result, is bold, effective evangelism. Seven Road, I want to ask you, is it possible that you feel like you are spiritually empty and trying to do ministry on fumes in powerless and ineffective ways because we have neglected prayer and specifically corporate prayer? Is it possible? Do you wonder what we neglect and what we forfeit when we neglect and forfeit prayer? and particularly corporate prayer. Or let me say it positively. Can you imagine what could happen in our time, among us, through us, and in us, if we were committed to praying together? I guess I'd have you consider that they prayed together and it resulted in being filled with the Holy Spirit and bold evangelism. Let's keep going. From what God was doing in their prayer and through their prayer, the church continues to grow. And I mean, it's just growing like wildfire. Despite many obstacles, we won't look at it now, but in chapter 5, there's sin within the church. A man named Ananias and Sapphira, they sin by lying to the Holy Spirit and lie to the apostles, and God literally strikes them dead on the spot. Right? This is not Old Testament, you know, some kind of fable. This is New Testament after Jesus. And these two believers come into the church, they lie, and God kills them. That's just on the side for free. Then in chapter 6, you find not only is there sin, not only is there increased persecution, but now there's conflict as well. Look at 6 verse 1. Here's what's happening. The gospel is beginning to spread and not only are Hebrew Jews coming to believe in Jesus, but the gospel is jumping over the fence and now Greek Jews are beginning to believe in Jesus. And now there's this quarrel that begins to brew because as they're distributing food to the poor widows, it seems like the Hebrew Jews are being favored and the Greek Jewish widows are being left out. That results in conflict. That also should be encouraging to us. The church is praying together and yet it still does not prevent conflict from coming. And yet, when that conflict comes, they go to the apostles and they say, you got to do something about this. The apostles tell them, listen, we cannot give up the ministry we have to word and prayer to go wait on tables. Now, they're not saying that because they're proud or because they're above and the other guys are beneath. They're saying, God's called us to be devoted to the ministry of word and prayer and we cannot give those ministries up in order to wait on tables. And so what you ought to do is choose from among you some godly men who are filled with the Holy Spirit, have wisdom and the giftings to be able to execute and administrate and get things done and call them and bring them to us. And so the church does that. They choose seven men full of the Holy Spirit. The first martyr of Christianity is among these first waiters 
We're servants to God's community. The first one who dies for Jesus is among these, I want to call them deacons, right? And that's sort of what you have. You have the, the elders who are committed to word and prayer, and in order to free them to that ministry, you have some men who are called to do the administration and to serve skillfully and well. When they bring them to the apostles, 6 verse 6, these they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So here they have this crisis and need for leadership. They call up those leaders. They pray for them. They commission them. They set them to that work. And look at what the result of that time is. Verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So I guess I would have you consider that they prayed together and it resulted in the calling and commissioning of leaders to do different ministries, and that resulted in more of the word of God, more disciples growing, and more conversions and people coming to faith. Let's keep going. Now the advance of the church as it keeps spreading throughout the Roman world does not mean that things now suddenly become easy for the church. In fact, I want you to know that persecution and hardship and difficulty and sufferings increase as the church continues to grow. When you get to chapter 12, you find that there's this king named Herod. He's in power. He lays violent hands on those who belong to Jesus' church. And when you get to 12, you find out that James, one of the apostles, is captured by Herod, and Herod literally puts him to death by the sword. If you've read through the Gospels, you've heard the apostle James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, one of the first disciples Jesus had called. And now he has literally have his, had his head cut off by Herod at the sword. And, and I want you to remember, the church praying does not mean that the church will not suffer. Right? Perhaps that's important to remember that prayer does not get the church out of suffering, but gets the church through suffering. It doesn't get us out of suffering, it gets us through suffering, in the midst of suffering. So now, nevertheless, James is dead, and now you read that Peter has been captured as well. And Herod intends to do with Peter what he did to James. So again, remember, this is not no slap on the wrist. This is not, oh, Peter's in a little bit of trouble. Peter's head is on the chopping block next. They had just killed James. They've now caught Peter. He is surely to die. The church hears of this, and what's their immediate response to this danger and crisis? Look at 12, verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. They find out James's head has been cut off. They find out Peter is next. And they immediately set themselves to earnest prayer together for God to rescue Peter. They come to this crisis. They cannot act on their own. They seek God together. If you keep reading down 12, I won't do it now. God, in response to this prayer, literally, miraculously intervenes, sends an angel... Right Here they are, gathered together, the prayer meeting of the church. God, rescue Peter. Somehow miraculously intervene. Somehow save him, spare his life. And God does. He sends an angel. Literally, the, the angel has to wake Peter up. Get up, get up, get up. And Peter's so groggy, he doesn't think this is real. He's walking and he thinks he's in a daze. He's literally standing in the middle of the city and it finally dawns on him that he's not hallucinating, that he's not dreaming. 
And then listen to what happens. Verse 12. When he realized this, that, that, that he's not dreaming. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. It's this great passage. The church is gathered together and they're going, God, rescue Peter, somehow deliver him, miraculously intervene, save his life. And then all of a sudden they hear a knock on the door. And so the girl goes out, she sees it's Peter, she's so excited, she leaves him at the front door and goes back to the prayer meeting. And Peter's now standing there in the dark, looking over his left shoulder and his right. And you can imagine him thinking, my God, God sent a stinking angel to save me and now I'm going to die outside because they won't open the door, right? The girl goes back in and if you read, she goes to them and tells them, Peter is standing outside, verse 15. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so and they kept saying it was his angel. And I love that. You know how you pray together and expect nothing to happen? These guys are praying together. Oh God, miraculously intervene. Spare Peter's life. Send an angel somehow and rescue him. A knock at the door. They open, they see it. She comes back and it says, God has heard our prayer. He's miraculously intervened. He sent an angel. He's rescued Peter. They go, you're out of your mind. They would have an easier time believing that an angel is standing at the doorstep than that prayer actually works. That might be encouraging to you. They would rather have quickly believed that an angel was outside than that prayer actually accomplishes anything. And Peter, it says, Peter continued knocking. You can imagine him standing outside. Please don't let me die out here. Open the door. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. I guess I'd have you consider that as they prayed together, it resulted in the Lord rescuing Peter from martyrdom and death and the continued advance of the gospel. The gospel continues to advance everywhere. The church continues to grow. It jumps over the banks of Jewish people. It reaches Gentile people. Churches are planted all over the place. Let me show you two more and then I'll stop. The church gets planted in this city called Antioch, full of Gentiles. Till now, it was Jewish people who had known the scriptures, knew about Yahweh. Now it's idol worshipers, heathens, pagans. They're becoming Christians. The church in Jerusalem hears about this, and they don't know what to make of it. So they send this man named Barnabas and say, you go check out if it's legit. He goes in chapter 11, checks out, finds that it's legit. He goes and grabs Saul, who becomes Paul, the great church planter. He says, you got to come. God's doing something in Antioch. They go there, they spend a year of their lives pouring into these people, fruitful, faithful ministry. Hundreds of people are coming to know Jesus, conversions all over the place. You can imagine these two were key leaders to the church in Antioch. Much of what God was doing there happened through these two. If there's any two people that are indispensable, that you can't lose, that you can't, that you can't afford to, to, to lose, it's these two. And then look at 13 verse 2. The church at Antioch is praying and it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. 
Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So remember, Paul and Barnabas have spent a year here. They've become dear to these brothers and sisters. They're the ones who taught them the gospel. And they are key leaders that are indispensable. You cannot afford to lose them in your ministry. And yet, as the church prayed together, the Holy Spirit prompted them to see that God had different plans and more for Paul and Barnabas and that they were to be set out. And so the church responds by praying and fasting more. And when it makes sense to all of them, when they're confirmed that this is what God wants through prayer, they lay their hands on them and they send them. The sending of these key leaders was prompted by corporate prayer. And I want you to know that this Spirit-led Prayer sought, sacrificial, strategic sending of these key leaders leads to incredible gospel fruit and church planting and conversions all throughout the Roman Empire. By the 4th century, Christianity has taken over the Roman Empire. And much of that was as a result of the missionary journeys and church planting and work of Paul and Barnabas and his team. And all of that was born from the Spirit prompting the church through corporate prayer. So I guess I would have us consider that the praying together resulted in the sacrificial sending of key leaders for the further advance and spread of the gospel. So I wrote, are we beginning to see what we forfeit and neglect when we forfeit and neglect corporate prayer? Or to say it positively, is your soul and its appetite beginning to perhaps grow for the incredible things that God could do among us if we would set ourselves to prayer and to praying together? Let me show you one more and then we're done. They're sent from the church in Antioch, Paul, and he goes about in many missionary journeys, plants churches all over the place. He goes to the city called Ephesus and he spends more time there than anywhere else. He spends three and a half years there, which for Paul is a lifetime of ministry because he's always on the go, planting different churches, witnessing to different people. After three and a half years in Ephesus and fruitful, faithful ministry, in Acts 20, God calls Paul to leave. And now he's got to say goodbye to these people that he's known for three years and he's loved and he's been their pastor. And he calls all the elders, the pastors together. And in Acts 20, he gives this emotional, heartfelt, moving farewell to them. He tells them things like, the Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me, but I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He goes on to say, and I know that I will see none of you again. You won't see my face again. And he pleads with them to be alert that wolves are coming to devour the flock. And he speaks as a good and godly pastor to these men. This text was one that we memorized in the elder track together, and it worked on our hearts. After he says this incredibly moving farewell, look at what they do in verse 36. Acts 20, verse 36. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Here's this gut-wrenching moment 
And, and I'll tell you personally, I've, I've been there before, and we as a church will be there. It's this, this moment where it doesn't make sense. We love one another. Why wouldn't we stay together forever? And yet when the gospel actually penetrates our hearts, you're going to find that we're constantly having to send people that we love. Right? The human natural tendency would be, we love one another. Why don't we huddle and stay together till Jesus returns? And yet if the gospel drops in our community, you're going to find there's this magnetic draw that pulls people to the ends of the earth in ways that make no sense. And we're going to find ourselves like these men, constantly having to revisit and hug one another and tearfully say goodbye so that the gospel continues to spread. I've been there. We as a church will be there soon. And in that gut-wrenching moment, when literally Paul has just finished saying, I'm never going to see you again. What do they turn to? In that moment, what do they turn to? They pray. They turn their hearts together as one, and in one accord, they turn their faces to God, and they pray. And I want you to hear, that's one of the most beautiful things about corporate prayer, is that it binds us together, and it's a picture of the unity that we have in Jesus Christ. When we pray together, it's this wonderful picture that Jesus, through his own death and resurrection, made us who were strangers one. The Bible describes us as having one heart and one mind with one voice. And that's seen when we pray together. When we pray together, it's not you and you and you, it's us. We pray together. Listen, when we're at church, and someone stands in the front and prays aloud. I want you to hear this. It's not 80 people having their own individual private quiet times or devotions. If you grew up thinking that what you should do when people pray is tune them out as best as you can, try and ignore everyone and make sure it's just you and God and have your personal devotion, you're neglecting and forfeiting the beauty of corporate prayer. When one person stands aloud and prays, it's all our hearts and all our minds, and all our voices in one to the Father. So when someone is praying aloud, I want you to hear this. Be engaged. Don't tune out. Don't forfeit and neglect the benefit to your soul to be with the body and approach God together. Don't be thinking about what you're going to be praying next. Be fully engaged in that prayer because that prayer is your prayer. We're one. In fact, that's why it would be right and appropriate for you to say amen. Right? You can say amen as someone prays that good word that simply means, I agree. You add your consent. It would be right for you to say yes. It would be right for you to grunt in agreement as someone prays in a way to express, yes, Lord, what they're saying is for me too. It counts for me too. And what an encouragement to know. If, if you're a weak prayer, if you're not very good at prayer, what an encouragement to know that when you pray with the body and someone who is mature in prayer prays, you just get to go, God, that counts for me too. That's me too. Yes, amen, I agree. And God receives our prayer. And when you are the one praying, what a humbling thought to say, it's not just you and the Lord. Your prayers are not filled with I's and me's and my's. Your prayer is filled with we and us and our. We come to you, Lord, 
We speak to you, Lord. Bless us, O Lord. Help us, O Lord. And what a humbling thought. You are in some ways patterning what Jesus is doing in the heavens. We, we said that Jesus, when he went to heaven, he's not taking a nap, waiting. Jesus is even now interceding for his people. So one man is speaking to God about many. That's what you do when you raise your voice and pray on behalf of others. Your voice is ascending to the heavens to the Father on behalf of all those who are gathered around you and with you. What a humbling and great thought. There's perhaps much more that can be said. I would have you hear and consider that the early church prayed together and God did amazing things. I'll give you two last words as words of application for us today. Here's the first one. As you hear this, repent. And I don't say that to you. I start with me. I repent. I repent. Throughout this week, as I've been studying and, and, and as I've been considering this, God's been growing an excitement in my heart, but he's also been cutting my heart. I have not led well in corporate prayer. Prayer was a big thing that we had when we started because we had nothing else. Nobody was here. And yet, as things get busy, it's amazing how prayer gets pushed off to the side. And as his finger has been convicting my heart this week, I've tried everything I could to weasel out from under his conviction. I've tried to say, but God, we do pray. And we do. And I give God thanks for that. We pray in soul care communities, and that's beautiful. We pray in every meeting that we have, and that's beautiful. We pray on Sunday mornings before the service, and that's beautiful. We pray in informal settings and formal settings, and that's beautiful. We pray in our homes. All of it is beautiful. And yet I know that God has convicted me that we have not sought God corporately in prayer to do amazing things that I think he intends to do. I have not led well, and the Spirit has convicted me that I need to repent Part of me keeps going, but God, thank God, a few ladies gather every Monday night to pray. So on account of Lisa, please don't burn us all down, right? But God, God, I think, is cutting my heart, and I hope your heart, to say, what are we neglecting? What are we forfeiting by not being committed to praying together? And there's all kinds of reasons why that is, right? It's because deep down there's this immense self-confidence that we could pull this off. Only desperate people pray. And that means we're not desperate because we think we got this and we can do this. Or, you know what's even worse, and I think this is where my heart is, I'm ready to settle. I'm just amazed that there's a room and that there's people and, and I'm fine with that. And I'm ready to settle for whatever we can manufacture from our flesh. You got some gifts, you got some talents, let's just do the best we can. But I think God would have us step into the place that is beyond our flesh and desire that for which only the Spirit can produce, not which we can manufacture. That we would yearn for the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, not the manufacturings of the flesh. And we would seek God and step into all that He wants to do in and through us so that it might be a testimony to everyone that was not because of them. It was clearly only the things that God could do. So repent. What are the things? Laziness. Whatever the things are. Overconfidence. Whatever the things are that keep us from prayer, repent. And then, the other thing I would say, thanks be to God for His grace. That He doesn't just humble us to the ground. He lifts us up. 
He sets us to obey. He empowers us to obey. So let's do that. I know the answer is not some knee-jerk reaction to say, okay, from now on, Monday through Friday, 4.30 a.m., corporate prayer. But how would you have us obey God? What settings would you have us be in so that we might come into bold, fervent, persistent, persevering, faithful prayer? If we want to be on the front lines, not settle for cookie cutter what we can do ourselves, but on the front lines of what God is doing in the world, in our city, if we want to see the Spirit raise up leaders, if we want to see them sent out for the spread and advance of the gospel, if we want to see churches planted, if we want to see disciples grow, if we want to see conversions in our lifetime, if we want to see things that we could have never done, then we ought to step into corporate prayer and receive all that God has for us, for His glory and our joy. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these brothers and sisters who have sat so patiently under your word. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would lodge some seed in our heart and that it would germinate into a full-bore passion for prayer and a desire to pray with others and to seek you for what only you can do in our time and in our midst. I pray that. We pray that you would put a passion in Seven Mile Road, that we would become a movement of prayer, and that we would have us become a house of prayer. Jesus said that his temple was to be a house of prayer. We know there's no temple anymore, but we are the body of Christ, the building of Christ, and we are the house of Christ, and we would become a house of prayer. So come do that by your Holy Spirit in a way that would magnify Jesus, we pray. Amen.